Hello, welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I'm Ben Shaw, and today I'm catching up with Ryan Ellison of Ryan and Sophie Sailing. First sponsorship of the show comes from Shearwater Sailing, a sailing charter business run out of Monterey Bay by Kevin Wasbauer. Kevin's flagship vessel, Atalanta, is a beautiful, fully equipped FAR 53. You can spend a day sailing Monterey Bay aboard Atalanta or contact Kevin for offshore opportunities to hone your blue water sailing skills. Find more info at shearwatersailing.net. That's shearwatersailing.net. Now, you may know my next guest from the excellent videos that he and his partner, Sophie Darcy, post on YouTube. Together, they've been sailing aboard their boat, Polar Seal, a 2007 Beneteau Oceanus 40, since the summer of 2018. They threw off the dock lines, imagining they'd be out for about six months to a year. And now, five years later, they've sailed from the North Sea down to France where Sophie's from, onto Spain, and then into the Mediterranean. Then they brought the boat across the Atlantic via a 3,500-mile journey from Gibraltar to the Canary Islands, and then on to Martinique in the Caribbean. Currently, they're in my old stomping ground in the Chesapeake Bay, and they've got some exciting news with the launch of a new sailing course for people who would like to follow in their footsteps, or should I say, wake. Ryan and I talk about a whole lot in this interview, including his life-changing encounter with a mother goose, a traumatic single-handed transatlantic trip, training a new fuzzy crew member, and what more than five years living and sailing aboard with Sophie has taught him about life and relationships. Well, let's get started. You are actually sitting aboard your boat. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are and the boat itself? Sure. Yeah, I'm sitting aboard our boat Polar Seal. It's a 40-foot Beneteau from 2007. Uh, And we're sitting in just outside of the Annapolis area in a marina called Harrington Harbor South. Oh, I know Harrington Harbor South well. (laughs) Yeah, so that's where we are. It's been a great great little place a uh, good place to for us just to kind of relax after a, a pretty hectic year and in a few weeks we're actually going to put the boat up on the hard and give her a break as well so that's great yeah i had my boat on the hard at harrington harbor south before i shipped her out here and actually had a previous boat there so i'm very familiar with that area it, it's a lot of space that's nice well, you have a crew, a new crew member too, right? That's right. Yes, just just a few days ago, this is the first public media event I would say with. But yeah, we just picked up a <laughs> unveiling a new, here. Yeah, we just picked up a new crew member. It's a uh, it's about a I don't know a foot long uh, multi poo uh, that we've named Barnacle. Uh, so she she joined us a few days ago, and Sophie and I are in full on training mode, which means we're getting nothing done. <laughs> and um uh nothing done with our personal stuff but a lot done with the dogs so yeah yep. oh that's that, exciting it, it will add to the adventure for that sure is, that will add to the adventure what so training for a dog that's going to be a live aboard dog is got to be pretty intense like what are your goals 
as with everything with sailing, you know, it really depends what you're trying to do. For us, we do, we have done a lot of offshore sailing and that, you know, you got to get a dog ready to pee on board. So we actually have a little grass mat, but uh, we've taken the approach that we just want to get her used to like being in the space on the boat, the noises of the boat. We're going to take her out sailing next week, a few days. And so we've been doing everything like, you know, having the pumps run to having the engine run, you know, all of these things. But then, you know, just for like potty training and stuff, we're just trying to get our feet underneath us. And, you know, we'll just take her out on shore and over the little grass spot. Um, and I think that's the first step. <laughs> so yeah. we're kind of learning as we go along. Yeah. I can't remember who it was. I was talking to somebody recently who had a dog on board and they said the dog hated the diesel and they actually repowered to an electric to electric propulsion and the dog was so much happier on board but that is um that's quite a commitment to, <laughs> for a dog yeah it's it's super important like i i mean <laughs> talking about sailing now we're talking about dog training but it's super important that you tell know, like uh, till they're like 16 weeks old they really don't have fear of anything mm-hmm. so, so it's you can you can acclimate them to many many things so we've been like just everything we can do so we've had the motor on we, we can't plug in here because we're two, 220 volt boat but um you know turning the motor on to charge the batteries she doesn't seem to care which is great <laughs> so that's, that's good, good. Uh, she just doesn't seem to care she's she's a lover so she wants to be in someone's arms all the time uh so she doesn't care about anything else as long as she's getting love but the problem with that is sometimes we got to put her down so uh, that's probably the biggest challenge we'll have. <laughs> you can't hold her all the time. Well, no. I mean, it is talking about dog training, but it's talking about people and sailing actually on a larger, I, I, I was just, we just took a weekend trip and we're doing just a little bit of sailing. It was mostly motor sailing and motoring, but my daughter who is five, you know, hadn't really experienced healing before. Mm-hmm. And she was saying the boat's tipping and she was getting very scared. And it's, it, it is that exposure. If you're unfamiliar with the sounds and with the feeling of a boat, you know, it's scary until you, till you get to know it. Yeah. The biggest problem we're having is, um, the floors in this boat are very slick and we have this problem we can't walk around when we're heeled over in socks because we just slide everywhere and so for this little teeny dog it's even worse so we've Mm. actually had to as an interim solution we went to home depot yesterday and bought some some mats some like floor mats Mm -hmm. uh, so she can like stay in certain parts (laughs) Um, but that's going to be very interesting when we're we're underway as well so we're gonna have to find a solution there a lot of adaptation well let's jump back more into the sailing a little bit and how did you come to sailing and then did you introduce sophie to sailing your partner or or tell me a little bit about i would say i came into sailing about 10 minutes before Sophie did okay Um, so people who who know our story may know this story already but but what happened is Sophie and I had been dating maybe for just a few months and I went back to Iowa where I'm from the big sailing mecca had I was helping my family there was some medical things going on with my dad and at the time I was a big adventurer big rock climber runner endurance athlete and I was off training for a, a marathon and during that run I was about 30 kilometers into the run so it was a long one I, I came across this family of geese geese weren't very happy because they had little babies and one of them attacked me and when they attacked me I fell while I was trying to get away and I, I ended up dislocating my shoulder and breaking the socket bone um, that was in so it was quite a painful experience flew back to Sweden a few days later and 
had surgery, so they essentially had to rebuild my my whole shoulder. Hold on just a second. How did you manage a flight from the United States? To oh, yeah. I was pretty drugged up. Okay. Uh, so I was in a sling and I had some good friends, you know, taking me to the airports and picking me up from the airports. And I just I just got drugged up and slept the whole way. <laughs> so yeah. Wow. That's how I did it. No, I, I I actually went to the emergency room in Iowa and they reset it, you know, so everything was fine. But they said, you know, okay. you, you really when you get back uh, back to Stockholm, you, you need to go see it. Uh, a specialist and I did and they immediately decided just to rebuild it since since I'm more of the athletic type than the sitting type so mm -hmm. yeah so during that recovery process uh it took me about six months to learn how to use my arm again uh from you know the first three months I couldn't even pick anything up it was just about me you know lifting my arm above my head that was a good day in in the process I couldn't do the things that I loved and I was pretty depressed so I sat around and was reading articles about different things. And I came across a story from a sailing couple named Matt and Jessica. Uh, Matt and Jessica are still sailors. They're actually not very far away from us right now on Kent Island. They're building their own catamaran. They have their own YouTube channel. But it was a story about how they just sold everything and bought a boat and left. And I was like, wow, this is an amazing idea. Like, think about how cheap we can live. It's, it's like free. You know, you just buy a boat and the wind takes you. You don't have to buy fuel. It's just... <laughs> Oh, how, I'm you know, laughing how, because my yeah. mom just sent me a, a, a photo from, that she found online somewhere. It said, sailing, the most expensive way to travel for free. That's right. That's our motto. Exactly. And um, yeah, so I'm actually thinking the latter. It's, it's free. So I sent the article to Sophie. Uh, I had no sailing experience at this time. I'd been on a sailboat maybe once. Sent it to her. Sophie's from France, from the, the Brittany coast. And she had done some sailing while she was younger, but I sent it to her and I said, hey, would you want to go on an adventure with me? Granted, we'd only been dating for about three months. And she said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So we came up with a plan. And six months later, once I got my arm working, we took a sailing course. And a few months after that, we bought the boat that I'm sitting on today. And that's, that's, awesome. that's how we got into it. Yeah. Just jumping in with both feet. I love it. Yeah, I think I think that it feels when I tell that story, I think that it feels like we really jumped into it, but we took it pretty methodically. You know, we said, OK, let's see what a, let's take a course where we live on board for two weeks, just you and me, see if we like it, see if we still like each other. And then if we do, then let's start looking at boats and then see if we can afford a boat. And if we do like that, let's take the boat and sail it in Stockholm for a year and see if we still like that. And that's, that was kind of how we approached the whole project. It was pretty methodical and we kind of had gates along the way. Mm -hmm. um, but when you tell the story in a five minute elevator sure. pitch, it, it sounds like we just, we just went for it. So you yeah. just went for it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was, that was actually going to be my next question is how did you go about the learning process? Cause it is a learning process. Yeah. The, um, Luckily, I mean, I come from a flying and aviation background. So when we took our course, really the things that I needed to learn was how the boat works, how do you make the thing go, and kind of the rules of the road for sailing, which aren't much different than, than flying. Uh, Sophie had to learn everything from navigating to weather to, you know, just every little thing to, to just basic principles of physics on how those sails work. And so we did that with an instructor. I found a school in Gibraltar that wasn't very busy at the time so they said you know what no problem we'll just take you and her only 
two weeks, you know, you can have a, a good amount of time just living on the boat, see if you like it. And that was, that's, that's how we did it. But, you know, as with anything, the real learning process didn't start until we left that course and went off on our own. And so right. I would say, I would say our learning process has been the last four and a half years <laughs> of living on air. So. Yeah. So that was 2018 that you. Yeah, we left and we, we left Stockholm in 2018. Okay. Uh, and our original plan, I mean, the plan morphed so many times. Our The original goal was that we just wanted to do an Atlantic circuit. So we're going to go down, go around uh, and come back to Sweden and, you know, rejoin society. And then, you know, the more we kind of started thinking about it and the more we, we started planning, we both realized we weren't very happy with our jobs. We said to ourselves, you know, let, why don't we just like make a break? You know, let's, we've wanted to do our own thing for a long time. Like, I can start consulting in the, the business that I was doing. Sophie had some opportunities, like, let's just give it a go and see what happens. You know, like the worst thing that happens is we're on a boat and, you know, we can sell it and come back. So we kind of turned it into a whole big life changing event, not just a one year sabbatical. And then it was, well, where do we go? You know, and we said, let's just take it six months at a time. So we said, we go to the med for six months, see how we're doing go to the next place for six months and we we're just kind of always reevaluating uh things so yeah what's been the biggest surprise from that what have you found that you didn't expect either positive or negative from doing that oh i mean there's so many things uh the, i think a huge positive uh, I'm originally from the U.S. I moved to Sweden 12 years ago, um, and I've traveled the world. And so, so I have experience with seeing life in other people's eyes and in other locations in the world. But then to get on a boat and see it from the water and the people that you meet on the water and, and, and those interactions that you have with different communities, different cultures, um, and even other sailors while I knew that that would be a thing, it's been extremely impactful to me. Uh, I, I tell people all the time, the world is 75% water. You can't actually see the world unless you have a boat and you go out and explore. You know, Otherwise, you're seeing just a fraction of the planet. And most people don't even travel, so they see a minute fraction of it. That's been a big surprise to me. The other thing, a negative aspect, I would say, is that it's been very hard on a relationship on a boat. Mm. And I don't think Sophie and I were expecting that when we left. Um, looking back on it, like all the signs were on the wall that like, okay, yeah, you're going to go live in a very small place 24 <laughs> seven with your partner and be in very stressful environments. Yeah. That's going to take a toll <laughs> on things. That's probably been the hardest part of the project is just maintaining a healthy relationship, both for yourself and with your partner. That I definitely did not expect when we left the dock. Yeah, you learn a lot about yourself and your relationship when you're put in those kinds of situations. I'd say we we always tell people that there's three things you need to take care of before you leave. And the first two are really obvious. The first is you need to have a boat. You need to know everything about the boat. And you need to have it ready to go. The second piece is the finances. Obviously, we all need money to live. So, if, you know, you're going to live off savings. If you're going to work a little bit, you kind of got to get have that piece figured out before you go. But then the third piece is the relationship piece. And that's relationship, as I said, with yourself and with your partner. 
And that's a piece that never gets talked about and is skipped by many. And then when you are out there and you start hearing stories from other sailors that are living aboard and are traveling the world, you hear a lot of stories about people not making it as, as couples. You know, either they sell the boat and they go back or they break up. And I think that a lot of that spurs from the fact that nobody addresses it before you go. So that's probably the biggest thing I learned and the biggest thing we try to tell people before they set off to do this themselves. It's interesting because there aren't that many resources for that. I mean, there's plenty of resources out there how to fix up your boat, what you need to do, and how, how do you manage your finances? But the interpersonal stuff is harder because it is so personal, right? It is so unique for each couple or each person. Yeah, and, and it's it's weird. Boats boats are a weird thing they can really bring out the extreme highs and the extreme lows of emotion something that you'll never experience on land you know you can be feeling very high like the highest you've ever felt because you just saw a whale breach right next to your boat and then the next minute all hell breaks loose and it can bring out the very worst in you and you and your relationship because something has broken or something has gone maybe that whale hit your boat mm -hmm. <laughs> process um so it, yeah, they're very, it's a very strange, it is a love-hate relationship with the boat. You know, I always, I always tell people, you know, today I had a sell the boat day because mm. something so bad happened. You're just like, I'm selling it. I'm selling it. And there's, you talk to any other sailor and they'll know exactly what you're talking about. So yeah. I think it's just being realistic of what it is. Like it's not margaritas and sunshine on the beach every day. It's, it's a lot of hard work, but in, in reward, the rewards are very big. So yeah. yeah, like you said, the highs are high and the lows are low. We we all live cyclical lives. You know, you have high days, low days, high hours, low hours. But like the peaks and troughs of that cyclical cycle that goes on are much more contained in terms of like a, a, a spacing, a scale than what they are on a boat. It's just like really big troughs and that, you know, peaks and troughs really, really big. <laughs> yeah. If you do, you know, you draw it on a board, a big sine wave, you know, it's just some days you're just on top of the world and you shut that engine off and the sails are just taking you out and it's peaceful bliss. And then something happens and you're just like, oh, I cannot do this anymore. <laughs> that makes me think back to what you're talking about, about, um, well, this is, I'm going to combine a couple of things here, though, like your extreme sports, uh, marathoning and rock climbing, but also with aviation. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. But it sounds like you're very you're a very driven person, maybe goals oriented. You know, you, I'm really curious how that relates to sailing. Mm. Yeah, I've, I, whether this is healthy or not could be debated by many. But I've always, throughout my life, have wanted to do things different from other people. But I've also felt like I'm under the clock. This is probably not a healthy thing, but I've always felt like I've had this clock ticking above my head and time is really limited. And so if I'm going to go out and do cool things, I just got to go do them. I've always had this pressure and maybe, maybe that's not a great thing because that pressure has led to a lot of anxieties in my life that goal orientation is driven by the fact that I know that life, our lives are limited in terms of the time that we have to go do things. Was there something in your past that, that 
brought that to the fore of your mind or was that just an, an innate I, you know I've done a lot of exploring that with uh, various counselors in my life and I haven't pinpointed a time I think it's, I've just always had this feeling you know like we just got to take advantage of what we've got while we're here mm-hmm. um, you know and if you don't then it's well, you know you just kind of wasted it right you wasted this great opportunity I don't think there was there wasn't like some magical event you know I didn't have a big trauma in my life that I can pinpoint that has led me to that mm-hmm. um, but that but you know a lot of those goals were pretty lofty goals you know I I wanted to be a fighter pilot since I was a little kid you know I saw the fighter jets flying over my house and I got the opportunity to do that when I was 20 four years old but that was also a very like stress inducing time in my life because I felt the need to be perfect so I would you know meet this goal so I would succeed in that goal and that just brought lots of anxiety out of me which I didn't understand at the time which has also manifested in the sailing life <laughs> and now I've just had the time to explore it a little bit more and realize like all right I'm a pretty anxious person on top of being this person that wants to go experience everything and sometimes those feelings conflict with each other they conflict but they're also kind of two sides of the same coin in a way yeah yeah i mean one one can drive the other one leads i mean i think the anxiety is one of the reasons i might still be walking around on this great planet of ours because it keeps (laughs) it keeps me balanced you know so i go do a lot of what some people would call crazy things but the anxiety keeps me safe in a lot of ways, you know, it makes me calculate what I'm doing and making sure that I've taken all the precautions that I can along the way to make sure I can go home and tell the story of what I just did. Flying fighter jets and rock climbing, even running marathons. There's a lot of rush there. Does sailing provide that same? Yeah, that is an awesome question. And I still wonder about that. (laughs) But I have to say, so I get I get quite bored, especially with ocean sailing. It's very slow, methodical, and I feel like I'm. It's counter to my thought that time is ticking away, because yeah. you know you're just sitting on this boat and you're out there. That has forced me to try to slow down a little bit, just slow down, enjoy what's there, enjoy like taking everything that's there. You know, doing a lot of endurance sports is the same. Uh, so, you know, when I, when I was training for Ironman about, well, God, it was almost about 10 years ago, even though there's a lot of adrenaline and it's a, it's a very active thing, the majority of that process before you cross the finish line. So the training and the day the event actually goes on, it sucks. Like it sucks to be out there and being uncomfortable and sweating and hungry and just tired and wanting to stop. And, and, and I, I can equate that feeling to sailing. It, it's different in the sense that I'm not sweating. I'm not, well, I am tired on the boat, but, you know, it's just this methodical thing. And then all of a sudden, the finish line comes. In Ironman, you know, that finish line comes and that feeling that you get when you cross that finish line, I, you can't describe it. It's just like, I did this. Like, I did this. I don't care about anyone else. Like, I did this. Uh, and that's amazing. And it's the same thing when you've been offshore for many, many days and you, you know, you go on that chart, the tracker chart and you see where you've been, you've crossed an ocean and you can start to smell the land when you get close. And you're like, I did that. 
people hundreds of years ago did that, but not many. And there's still not many people that do that. I just did that. Like I did that by myself. That is super cool. And that's a feeling that's like that same high. So you got to go a long ways, a lot of time, you know, of uncomfortableness, boredom, things like that to get to that. But that's, again, what I'm talking about with this big cyclical lows and highs. Yeah. Uh, in it. Yeah. I love that you can also reach back to that. Like I find that, you know, having had some of those kinds of accomplishments, particularly in sailing, but I think back and, and it fades over time. And I'm like, no, no, mm-hmm. I did that. I accomplished that. And that's something that you can always hold on to. Yeah. And technology, I, technology today allows us to go back a little bit more. And so I think that when you're doing these things, it's important that you embrace some of that technology so that you can go back and remember an example of that is just, as I'm saying, like these trackers, and then, you know, you get to see your track for a lifetime, go back and like, look at that and be like, oh yeah. And maybe, you know, on our tracker that we have on our webpage, we make little blog posts. And so sometimes I'll go back and read those. And then you think about the days that were out there and what's, what's going on. And then it's the same thing with our YouTube channel. We wouldn't have that without Sophie, but for us just to go back. So sometimes I'll just go back and watch a video and remember the things that happened on that trip it's it's a pretty powerful thing and then you you can tell yourself like yeah i did that that's that's pretty cool and and nobody can take that away from you yeah let's plug that that youtube uh address while we're talking about it how do people find it it's uh it's very difficult it's uh ryan and sophie sailing uh that type that into any search engine and that will take you that'll take you right to our YouTube or our website. So you said that's also V. When did she start doing that? Yeah, she started the day that we left the dock. Um, she wow. didn't have any filming or uh, experience in that. She just got a camera and decided to give it a go. And she's just turned into an amazing filmer, editor, creator of content. Um, and it's it's really fun to see her thrive with that. It's it's got its challenges sometimes because, you know, there's sometimes I want to focus on certain things and she's picking up a camera, but mm-hmm. in the end, in, in the end, it is quite amazing what she does. And I, I only wish I could be as good as her uh, with that. So that's cool. Well, you contribute a lot with those because you, you contribute a lot of technical information as well. One of the things that um, I really enjoyed watching is your explanation of different systems on your boat, particularly you were one of the first to, to put lithium batteries on the boat. How has that evolved? And not, not the lithium per se, but you doing technical explanations on the, of the, on the videos. I mean, part of the whole anxiety piece that I was talking about earlier was one of the ways I call my anxieties. I just try to find as much information about something as I can before I go do it. So walking into boats, it's not like buying a house. I mean, everything's going to break. That's, I think Sophie's got a line. She says, everything on your boat is broken. You just don't know it yet. Um, (laughs) So, um, and it's, it's so true. Um, So, you know, it was interesting in Sweden because I don't speak Swedish, even though I lived there for 12 years and I'm now a citizen. And most people speak English, except a lot of the guys that work in the boating world. A lot of times I just couldn't communicate with the guys to get stuff done. So I would go out. I have this anxiety about us leaving. I wanted to know about things. So I just had to open up a book or 
find something online to figure out how to fix the thing I was looking at. I wasn't necessarily a handy guy before we bought the boat. I could like put a screw in the wall and that's about it. I taught myself a lot and I realized that as I did things, there wasn't a lot of good resources out there for people just to understand. So one of our best tech videos that we did was, well, what is a water maker? We wanted to add a water maker to the boat. All the water maker kits out there were really, really expensive. They were prohibitive for us. And I just one day said, you know what, what is a water maker? So I went online and just did hours of research. And I, in that I realized like, I can just build one of these. Like there's nothing, it's not rocket science. So I got together with an, a guy who was building kits, DIY kits, kind of, he'd send you all the parts and you kind of assemble it on the boat and just built my own out of the parts he sent me. And it was awesome. Uh, so we put that video out and I think it's got like 300,000 views. People write us all the time that they watch that and they, it's helped them make sailing attainable for them because it's just cheaper. That um, is awesome. I have, I have a newfound respect for that. Having just put in a water maker myself, <laughs> um, working with somebody who had the parts from, you know, a, a manufacturer, but, but not the standard parts it's complicated yeah there are a lot of there are lots of bits and pieces to do a water maker you know it's complicated but at the same time it's simple it's just a system yes and everything is just i would say that it's it's not so complicated as it is complex there's a lot of parts yes yes that's true there's a lot of parts but as soon as you know what each one of those parts does and how the system works um and if you can just break it down like that in your head it's pretty easy. And what's great is that if you know that, then when the thing breaks, you don't have to go spend a bunch of money hiring a guy that probably is going to yes. break it more anyways. You yeah. can sit there and try to figure it out, even though it takes a little bit of time. That's what I found very valuable in sharing those videos, but also learning myself is that when stuff breaks, because it will, and when you're offshore and you don't have the ability to call somebody, you just get it done and you fix it and, you know, off you go on to the next thing as the that self-reliance yeah yeah uh and i think it's the same when it came to the lithium like as you said we were we were an earlier adopter of that i mean shameless plug but i'm a i'm a partner and a founder of a lithium battery company that's how we got them on the boat and we decided to do some testing for them in the marine environment and they've just been amazing but i was not an electrician before we got those batteries and you know i sat there and i said well i'm gonna figure out how to wire these up so all the research went into you know what makes this safe how do you crimp wires how do you you know do the installation and then we we try to share that with people so they can do it themselves because you know as you get into it you just realize it's it's not that hard although so, that yeah. that that being able to fix it yourself i think is some of the fear and concern over lithium part mm -hmm. i mean that which always comes with new technology right but in that they are batteries that have to be managed by by a bms mm -hmm. so they're not just dumb lead acid and so there's concern from people that oh well if i'm relying on something i'm a, on a computer then it's then it's not as easy if i'm out there to fix yeah um, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. So bring me back when I forget what your original question was, because I'll answer it. Yeah, but I okay. think one of the one of the struggles I've really had in sailing as we've gotten into it is 
the, the industry is very slow to adapt to new technology. And I cannot for the life of me figure out why other than it's just not a very big market for a lot of companies to get into because, you know, there's a lot of boats out there, but it's not as big as other industries, right? It's not as big as a consumer cell phone business and all, all this stuff. So technology just takes a very long time to trickle down. Yeah. Further to that, the majority of people who do own boats and are out sailing are older people who yes. traditionally who traditionally do not like to change their thought process and their ways. And then even more to that, the people that are or have traditionally been involved in writing books or giving guidance on those things are also older and also like to do it their way. Yes. So it's created, this has created an atmosphere in sailing and, and they all use the excuse, well, it's sailing, it's special, it's, it's you know, it's very critical that all, it's, it's a harsh environment, which it is. But airplanes are in a very harsh environment. Airplanes rely on very critical systems to keep people safe. Yet there's a lot of technology that's in those aircraft that are not in boats that could really help boats. And so I've always find, found this argument really amusing. <laughs> and then it, it went into lithium, right? And it, it was just, it's just a big misunderstanding is what it came down to. Um, you know, there's lithium is like this all-encompassing word, word that, that includes many, many different types of batteries. And, and the battery used on a boat is not the same as the battery used in a high-end Tesla. And right. the ability for one to do a safe job and the other one to do a high-performance job and be a little less safe, it, it's, it's drastically different. So people see cell phones blowing up on the TV and they think that's the same battery that's in the boat. And it's not. But then all these, these people start talking about this on forums and, and they're just misinformed. The reality of it is the lithium iron phosphate that you should use on a boat is incredibly safe. Um, in, in aviation, I used to do a lot of work with risk management and aviation. And, and the, the key with new technology is it has to be of equivalent level of safety or higher in order to adopt a new technology. If it's below the, the, the level of safety that's there today, it's not a technology that you adopt. And it's, it's proven now that lithium iron phosphate is as safe or safer if installed correctly than the lead acid counterparts. Um, you know, lead acid can light on fire, it can melt, it can leak battery acid places. They have just as big a risks. It's just nobody ever talked to about them because that was the only thing available to power your lives. So now we have this new technology and it seems very scary because you see a Tesla car crash into a tree on TV and you hear the word lithium. And then you automatically associate with that with your boat. Yeah. As somebody who's looking into lithium and, you know, considering all the options, I've been following all the, the forums and the debates and yeah. the conversations you've had with Andy and that Andy's had with John Harry's and all mm -hmm. of that very closely. And I want to recommend everybody seek out the video that you recently did talking about actually using lithium on polar seal because i think it is a very clear-headed uh, scientific approach to to what you were just talking about and and very informative thank you yeah i actually did that video in a haste of uh being a little upset over some commentary going around the internet from some fairly well-respected people and people that i i actually still go to for information but i was a little annoyed <laughs> with those certain lines of thinking. Um, and 
and I think it's really dangerous when when people do things like that because you know there's there's a lot of sediment in this in the in the sailing industry that there's only one way to do it and it's it's just simply not true um there's many ways to go sailing and cross oceans and many of those ways are safe but if you don't give people the the different options you don't give them all the facts and allow them to make their own decision like what are what are we doing as an industry oh, and yeah, that's so- it i mean you have to give people the the opportunity to get the facts and make their own decision because everybody's going to have a different level of what yeah. they're willing, you know, I, I, I hesitate to even use the word risk, but the different, there's different options. There's different ways to do it, you know? So, well, and, and we all, we, we all have different goals, you know, not everybody's going to cross oceans like Sophie and I, or like Andy shell does. It's just not in the cards for a lot of people. And that's fine. A lot of people just want to go sailing down the Chesapeake here. They want to just go coastal sailing or their big trip is going to be to the Bahamas. That's great. But but the way you s- structure and set up your boat and the way you look at things is going to be different than somebody doing somebody going across the oceans. And that's even going to be different from somebody who's crossing an ocean just once and somebody who's going to do it continually. Right. So if we don't give people just the raw facts and just give them our opinion, I, it, you know, then then we get a lot of misinformation out there. And I think that was the point of that video is like, listen, guys, this is just the facts that I mean, there's a lot of factual information here. I'm not making it up. Uh, and then you you go make that decision. Um, and I'm not bashful, even though I, I own a battery company of telling people that a that I own it. And two, you know, lithium might not be the best option for you because of how you're sailing the boat. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's OK. Well, speaking of crossing oceans, I do want to talk to you about your solo trip across the Atlantic, because it touches on a lot of the things we've talked about so far. But you had a, a quite, <laughs> quite an impactful experience. And people can go online and see your whole explanation of running into some migrants while you were solo sailing. So I don't need, I don't, I want you to go into the whole story, but I want you to briefly touch on that. And, 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 and so we can talk a little bit more about what kind of impact that had on you. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> earlier this year, I decided uh, to cross the Atlantic uh, solo. Sophie and, Sophie and I had, had a talk about it and just the way things were shaking out, it seemed like a good opportunity. So uh, I left the Canaries, I don't even remember what date it was. It was in, in end of... Um, January. And two days in, I got a call from the Coast Guard asking if I could go see if I could spot a migrant raft at some locations that they had been reported. And I went and they were sure enough, they were there. And I was asked to stay for about five, six hours into the night while they were getting the rescue ship there and the helicopter was refueling. It was, um, it was an, it, it, and it was, it was a very impactful experience for me. Uh, one that I could talk about for hours. Um, I'll, I'll just want to have you describe a little bit uh, how you came across them. Yeah. So the Coast Guard had given me some coordinates. So I went there and Sophie and I had, um, we've spent some time in the med and obviously sailing down the African coast. So, we had heard a lot of these radio calls before, you know, be on the lookout for, for, a, for a floating raft with people aboard. And we had always had talks about, you know, what are we going to do if this happens to us? Mm-hmm. Because it is very, it is a very 
stressful and sad situation. You might have 50 people on a, on a, on a raft or on a skiff out there floating that are very desperate. And what, what do you do in that? Our, our boat can't fit 50 people. You don't know who these people are. And a lot of tanker ships won't pick up these rafts anymore because countries will not allow you in unless they're on the rescue boat, not on your boat. They're, right. they're and and authorities advise you not to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's oh, the key point. They, they, they actually tell you not to. So how do you mentally prepare yourself for something like that? And we, we had for the past two years um, before that happened, I had a lot of discussions about that and, you know, our, what, what the authorities say and what our policy was is that we will observe and maintain station, but we won't get close, you know, get too close and get involved in it unless, you know, there's, there's obviously a life in jeopardy. And that was my, policy there uh, in that situation what i wasn't prepared for was the fact that i was going to be by myself uh, and so those who have done ocean sailing understand that the night or two before you leave you get very little sleep because you're anxious you're nervous you're trying to get stuff done and then the first few nights you're out you get very little sleep because you're just trying to acclimate to the environment that you're in mm-hmm. so i was running on very very little sleep dealing with a very emotional thing by myself uh, and that was something i was uh, not prepared for at all when when the situation came up and it was compounded i believe because the coast guard was asking you to to keep an eye on this boat while they could get some rescue boats out there so you were having to stay alert and awake even longer than you had anticipated is yeah i think i came across the boat about five o'clock in the evening um or in the afternoon and then obviously sunset was about an hour and a half and it took i don't think i left until about 10 o'clock that night so i'm i'm in the middle of the ocean with you know a raft full of 50 people um in in dark they did have a flashlight thank god so i could see them but the reason you know people ask why did they ask you to stay it's going to be nighttime they don't know where this you know we're drifting off into the middle of the ocean not we're not heading towards the, the canaries we're like off going to the southwest you know away and they're using essentially my ais transponder to keep track of the boats that's mm-hmm. that's what I'm, I'm like a beacon for for everybody right. for the for the migrants you know they can see my lights but also for the helicopters and the rescue boats coming back uh, and that was essentially my role but in the process yeah i'm by myself i haven't I, you know i'm tired I, I don't have the ability to go eat because I'm trying to keep my eyes focused on a very small flashlight in a very big and dark sea. A, so I don't like lose them and B, so I don't run over them, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and that, you know, and, and the sea state wasn't very good that night. So we had waves coming into the cockpit. I was very cold and wet. And then knowing that there's 50 plus people sitting on a raft of men, women, and children that are trying to have a better life while I'm trying just to have an adventure, it, that, that's a pretty powerful thing to run into. J- just for some additional context, at the same time, for the last 18 months to two years, Sophie and I have actually been trying to get Sophie a green card to come to the United States. It's a pretty long story, but um, she hasn't been able to come to the U.S., which is my home, uh, for the last four years. So we have an immigration issue going on personally in our lives. And then you get to see migration happening right in front of you where people are risking their lives for something better. And and yeah, and you just get to deal with that by yourself. Wow. It's that 
chasm that you're suddenly confronted with between you being in a boat because <laughs> you want to be and people being in a boat because their lives depend on it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very hard thing to reconcile that we, you, you can see it on the news and you can talk about it. That is a thing that can provide understanding. But until you physically see people in the middle of an ocean that are about to die because they want a better life, it's, you can't, I mean, it just instantaneously, it changed my view on the world and my view on politics just overnight, like instantaneously you see that and you say, wow, this is really messed up because the people on that raft aren't criminals. The criminals are taking the airplane over to the Canaries to do whatever they want to do. These are people that literally have sacrificed everything. They put their child in a boat to go. And you can believe that that's a political thing or not, but it's the reality of what I saw. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty emotional. And then I, th I think the hardest thing for me was not, that event was fine. I was, you know, I was stressful. I was getting tired with it, but it was actually the aftermath of that event because my original plan was to go from the Canaries to Antigua, which is about, the plan, the plan was about 23 days. This happened on my second night. So all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I've got 20, I've got less of a month that I'm going to now be on my own. Am I in a mental space to, to, to process what just happened and deal with what's to come? I don't know. <laughs> and so a few days went by of me on the boat and the weather started to deteriorate and just things didn't start going well. And I found myself every day just crying about the situation, about where I was, and I'm in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> which is not the place to be when you're trying to deal with that stuff. Yeah, uh, and alone in the middle. Alone, yeah. So luckily, um, one of my best friends growing up in, in elementary school, we, we still stay in touch. He is a clinical psychologist and deals with uh, post-traumatic stress in soldiers. He does a lot of research with that. So I emailed him and I said, hey, man, I'm really struggling. This is what's happened. What do you think? And he said, he said, you know, the research says, Ryan, you need five things. You need to you need to get plenty of rest and plenty of food. You need to make sure you're not in stressful situations. You need to make sure that you're around friends and family. You need to make sure you can talk about what's just happened. Uh, and there was a fifth. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> and I went through that list as I was sitting on the boat and I was like, wow. I don't have a single one of these things that the research says I need right now. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I decided to, to um, change course. And I headed south down to Cape Verde, to the Cape Verde Islands. So it took me about a week to get to. And I, I knew that I had a, a few friends down there, uh, some other sailing friends that were, were crossing at the same time. So Sophie was uh, amazing, even though it was a solo sail you know, I could not have done it without her. So she kind of coordinated things in the background and made sure people waited around for me. And, you know, I just ended up staying in the Canary or in the Cape Verdes for about two and a half weeks. It's a lot of questions if I was going to continue the solo sail or not. Do I have what it takes to do this? Do I need to fly back to Europe and, you know, get some counseling for what I just saw? What, you know, like so many question marks. And, Really what it just took was a couple weeks of 
being close with friends and like-minded people and laughing and sharing stories to kind of re-energize me. And then eventually I just said, you know what, I can finish this. I need to finish this and uh, got on the boat. And 15 days later, I, I arrived in Antigua. So good for you for being self-aware enough to, to do that. You could have just said, Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to push through and been absolutely miserable and actually probably had longer term ramifications from the experience. Yeah. And you know, when you're doing big things like that, you want to, you want to enjoy it, right? You want yeah. to, I mean, it's sailing is not always comfortable. It's not always fun. So there's going to be days you hate, but if you hate the whole thing, what, you know, why do it? It's stressful on me. It's stressful on Sophie. It's stressful on any other support that we have uh, in the network that's, you know, trying to help out on the passage. And that time I spent in Cape Verde, those two weeks, it was an incredible experience. I wish Sophie was there to experience it with me. It was just a nice time and with amazing people uh, and it, some really funny stories that happened. So yeah, I, I, I live by the philosophy that the universe talks to you, talks to you in many ways. And it's up to us to listen to the things that it's trying to tell us. And I know that sounds very uh, new age and, you know, <laughs> crystals and, and uh, spices type stuff, but the universe was telling me, it was telling me through many different ways that like, listen, you need to stop. You need to just recalibrate and it's going to be good. But if you don't do this, you're going to be fighting all the forces in the world. <laughs> and it's not going to be very fun. Yeah. I've listened to you and Andy talk a lot about situational awareness and it, it is that it's being aware. Yeah. yeah. It's just being aware. And it's really this is Andy and I's message a lot of the time. In aviation, we do a really good job teaching pilots how to evaluate risk and how to how to keep an eye on the whole picture. And sailing, we do just a crappy job of teaching people how to do that. The, there's really good programs out there like the RYA and ASA, and they can teach you how to sail a boat with the best of them, but they just do a really bad job of teaching people how to make good decisions and keep their eyes on the bigger picture and that's kind of been him and i's message uh and a lot of the activities that he's doing andy with his podcast and with uh, a website called the quarter deck if you haven't checked that out it's a really good resource for seamanship uh on the seas but that's been the message is like there is there is a whole another element to training which is this situational awareness and, and good decision making and mentioning Andy's quarter deck, which is a resource, you and Sophie, I believe, are going to be launching a resource soon. Oh yeah, talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. This is. How do you uh, like that segue? That was great, actually. I almost <laughs> forgot about that. Uh, we, um, yeah, that's that's right. About a year ago, Sophie and I embarked on a on a major major project uh, with another company called Bright Trip. Uh, they're kind of the master class of travel, if you will. Um, and we, they approached us and wanted to do a whole course on how to sail the world. Um, so it's not a course about how to sail, like as in how to wrap a line around the winch. Uh, it's a course about how to cruise. So it's essentially a 10 hour video online course that we put a year's worth of effort into. Uh, I think Sophie wrote 400 pages of script. 
for the for the course so wow. it's been yeah it's it's a big one and we spent two full weeks filming it um you know day in and day out so 10 hour days of filming uh and it's it's everything it answers every question that sophie and i had or didn't know we had before we set off in this lifestyle so it's everything from like parts of a boat how do you buy a boat how do you insure a boat to how do you decide where you're going to go sail to how do you check in in a new country how do you check out um and then everything down to like the relationship stuff kind of that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast you know um how do we manage our our social lives how do we manage ourselves how do we stay healthy so it's like all of that stuff in a course just with just enough information to get you going um and we're we're just super excited about it it's it's going to come in three parts so it's actually three separate courses that will make up the whole kind of syllabus uh and the first one's going to launch hopefully november 10th that's if exciting yeah if you're interested in that you can uh, check out our website ryanandsophie.com or you can head over to bright trip it's uh just as it sounds bright trip dot com slash sailing there'll be a, a whole bunch of information there awesome ryan this has been such a fabulous conversation i've been uh, looking forward to talking to you for a long time ranging all over the place you've got so much to share so i just want to thank you again absolutely yeah it's been been great talking with you that's it for this week's show Visit ryanandsophie.com to learn more about Ryan and Sophie and their boat and their new crew member, Fuzzball Barnacle. I also recommend the Polar Seal Sailing Podcast, in which over the course of nine episodes, Ryan goes into detail about his Atlantic refugee encounter that we discussed in the interview. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can reach me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or email me directly at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. And until next time, smooth sailing. <laughs>